La paz y la gracia del Señor sea con cada uno de ustedes en este lindo día. The peace and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And for me, it is a privilege and a blessing first to be in the house of the Lord, joining you in this place in our worship and praise to our blessed hope and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I thank Asbury Seminary, the faculty, their administration, uh, the directors of the, uh, the Hispanic program for this invitation and privilege to come to know this community of this campus because I'm aware and I've worked with Asbury Seminary in Orlando, in Florida, but not here. And I praise God for these facilities. And I also want to take the uh, opportunity to thank uh, and uh, Ashbury for your faculty. Especially, I have been so blessed over the last several years with the contribution and insight and gifts of such scholars as Keener and Wintherington. And the only question that I wanted to ask them if I would find myself with them here in living flesh is when do they sleep? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's just... Uh, it's incredible, but often, as I was sharing with Danny, that often when I pick up their works of scholarship, uh, I pray. I pray for them. And thank God for their gift to the church, for their scholarship, because I'm enriched and challenged and blessed by their ministry to me and to so many others who seek to continue to reflect on the power and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, I, I have entitled uh, our reflection, and I would say, uh, as I thought of it more and more, not as a sermon. So if you're in a homiletics class, don't look for the patterns, you know, of a proper sermon. Uh, or if you're in a class of exegesis and looking critically at the text, its literary style, its context. No, no, no. What I'd like to do, the more I reflected on this over the last week or so, especially the last couple of days, you know, I said, what I want to do is to think out loud. In Puerto Rico, uh, I've had the blessing and the privilege of, of leading a panel for 20 years on the radio every Tuesday morning. And this morning, to my surprise, uh, the director of the radio program calls me and he says, Sam, we're waiting for you. We're going on the air. And I said, I'm not in Puerto Rico. I'm in Kentucky. <laughs> and he says, I told you that. Didn't you get my email? You know? And so the, the program is Thinking Out Loud was the title that the Lord gave me 20, 20 odd years ago for this program. And, and so what I'd like to do, rather than look at it as a setting of a sermon or exegetical treatise, is kind of my thinking out loud of sharing with you some of my thoughts as I engage and re-engage the passage, the prologue of John in John 1 and 14, and specifically Acts, Luke's report of the giving of the Holy Spirit and the birthing of the church in the day of Pentecost, and where it's raised up, where the Holy Spirit is given, and he, he empowers those gathered with the Spirit to be able to speak in the languages of the diaspora, the languages of the great diversity of Judaism that had gathered 
for the Pentecostal feast. And Luke goes on to identify that great diversity. And it caught my attention that he not only speaks of languages literally, and here again, I'm greatly encouraged both by Professor Witherington and Keener at how they work exegetically and social rhetorically that literally, you're talking about language. Because over the years, there have been those scholars, they said, no, 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 it wasn't language. And not only language, you know, dialectos, also dialects, the diversity of expressions of language in the midst of the diversity of this Jewish community. And so I have, <coughs> I have entitled this passage, Cultural Glossolalia, a rereading of Acts 2. That over the years as a Pentecostal, as I've read and, and sought to better understand the gifts of the Spirit and the birthing of the church, I have seen that often, you know, we look about, oh, yes, there was, you know, there were languages, but it wasn't that, in fact, they spoke in another language. It was an, a, a miracle of reception, of being able to understand the babbling that was going on. And so they were babbling, and you know, they were kind of drunkard, but the miracle of the Spirit was that the Holy Spirit made it possible for those who were hearing the babble to understand it and interpret it as an expression of their own language. Well, I, I clearly don't understand it that way. I, I believe that the witness of the text tells me that it was in fact different languages and dialects. And Luke is, is kind of emphasizes that. But as I read and, and hear Professor Kenner and Worthington both have been very helpful, it, Professor Kenner raises this question when having Luke shared the Bible, the languages, he then they say, what does this mean? ¿Qué quiere decir esto? Okay, this is going on. What does it mean? And Professor Keener points this out. He comments and he says, public questions sometimes set the agenda for teachers' lectures on a given question. And so he says that as the question is, what does it mean? That it is that question that should lead us to reflect critically on what has gone on. What is the nature of this event? And so today I'd like to take that, what does this mean? It is this question, what means this, that sets the agenda for our reflection, for thinking out loud this morning. What significance, implications, impact, consequences does this strange verbal outburst have for those present and for us today, 2,000 years later, as we read the texts from a different culture, from a different society, a different history, a, a different social construct. Is that question that inquires, it is that question that inquires that leads us to think about out loud that takes me to the beginning of creation, to the very the beginning of God's discourse, that in the beginning God spoke. God, to reflect on the nature of the Trinity, the nature of community in the Trinity, for its implication for our Christology in the context of the incarnation and Christ becoming one with us. 
It takes me to reflect on the nature of biblical anthropology, the nature of culture and language in the message of the gospel. It takes me beyond there to the questions of ethics, ecclesiology, the nature and the, and the mission of the church, soteriology, salvation, and what is the blessed hope of the church. For me, all of this is engaged by the question, what does this mean? What are the implications of the presence of the Holy Spirit and its presence and sharing in a multicultural, multilingual community and empowerment to speak by the Spirit on behalf of God? These are the diverse horizons of our response to the question, what does this mean? What a wonderful, relevant, important question for us to consider in light of our current debate as a nation and more importantly as a church regarding our response to the challenges presented by Scripture, what Scripture calls the immigrant, the sojourner, the migrant, the foreigner, the goyim, the other. All these are terms or conditions that scripture addresses clearly for the concept and the reality of the other, of the migrant, is not something new, but it's been with us from the beginning of time. All these different approaches and understandings of the questions of the migrant and the other among us. This morning, I'd like to look and consider what does this mean? What does the presence of the Holy Spirit have to say to the question of the immigrant? God created us with the capacity to hear and to speak, to respond to God speaking through the creation and natural revelation and later through oral and written form and special revelation. In the book of Acts, we have a witness of once again, God not only speaking in creation, not only speaking through history, but now through the presence of the Holy Spirit, he equips the church to be contextually relevant, culturally relevant, to be engaged with the other, but through the means that makes it more possible and personal and interpersonal for us to engage with the other. He gives them miraculously a gift, a charis of the spirit that finds its origin and purpose in God himself. So they can address the diversity present in that community. The importance of language and culture for the newly founded church in preparation for both Witherington and Keener describe as cross-cultural mission. I would add it today that not only to respond to cross-cultural mission, not only to see the possibility of outreach as the result of mission, but how the Holy Spirit's work in equipping them to address them in their own language, which is the foundation of culture, is also to engage them not as an object of mission, but the very subject of mission, of the person 
not only to learn their language or culture, but how through language and culture, I come to a new relationship, personal relationship of engagement with that other person. So language and culture is so foundational for our relationships with the other. God, as I look at this move of the Holy Spirit, I see the model in God that he moves from his transcendence, the eternal, the infinite God, but now who chooses to speak, who chooses to express his contextuality, his relationship with his creation, that he then speaks and he creates a being, a male and female, with the capacity to hear and understand God's speaking. And it seems to me that the expression and the model that we find in God being an actor, an expressor of words of language is very important for us, that we have a divine example of the importance of speech. And so we find, and I find this as I reflect this, wow, in what language did God speak? Well, the scripture is taken from oral tradition, and we see that in the written tradition, it's Hebrew, some portions in the Old Testament in Aramaic and in the New Testament Greek. And how wonderful that God was bilingual, you know? And so this is great that God took seriously as he created us as male and female, the importance of language and language as the fundamental tool for cultural construction, social relations. And so we have an example in Christ in God. But I also find an example in Jesus, in the incarnation. What a scandal that God, eternal transcendent, would choose to break through his transcendence and become imminent, become present. And the word became flesh. The logos, which was eternal, infinite, takes on sarks, flesh. What an insult. What a word to use in Greek, sarks. Humanity. He takes it on. He identifies with our human condition. And this identification of the logos to become flesh is to take seriously the context of Jesus who comes as a Jew. As part of a Jewish community with a specific culture, with a specific language. So the incarnation takes by necessity seriously the culture in which he is going to make his presence known to the world. He's Semitic. He's a Hebrew. And he speaks Aramaic. And then again, I'm encouraged because Jesus is multilingual. He's speaking Aramaic. We know by his citing of the Septuagint, he knows Greek. And the citing of the Hebrew text, he knows Hebrew. And so he's multilingual. And probably as a citizen of the Empire of Rome, I have a suspicion he even knew a little Latin. And so when I look at the model of Jesus in its relationship to language and culture, God has taken so seriously the nature and the function of language and culture that he, has, he, he takes upon himself to identify himself and to come among us and partake in the importance and the expression of language and culture. And when I look, I continue to look at John's gospel. John goes on and tells us not only did he identify 
with our human condition and the reality of our social location, our culture, our language. But then he says he didn't do it from afar. He didn't go and take language studies or cultural studies at the university from afar, but he went into praxis. He tabernacles. As Kenneth said, he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among the pain and the suffering. And he came to that experience of pain and suffering as an other, as one similar but yet different. The word become flesh. And he tabernacled. And he accompanied and took part of the reality of the culture and of its language and its social location and of the experiences of oppression and the joy of its worship and its rich history. And so in Jesus, I find this one who, who identifies fully, but he comes and in the midst of this diversity of culture and language and the social struggles of the people of Israel, he has come with a, a purpose, a telos, that is to make reveal the justice and the grace of God in the midst of the people. He comes to locate the charis alithea, the grace, the love, the justice of God. But to do so, he must employ the means of culture and the use of language. And I thank God that language is not reducible to hearing. But God has also made it possible for a language like sign language, that without the hearing, yet God has made it possible for us, give us the intelligence to provide other means of language, of expressions of language. So the word became flesh, dwell among us, and we saw his glory full of grace and truth. And then looking and moving to the book of Acts, as I see the work of the Holy Spirit at the founding of the church, the beginning of the era of the eschaton, of the end of times, in completion to the promise of Joel, Joel 2, what do I find? Now the Holy Spirit, the third person, third person is a Pentecostal. One of the struggles that I've had theologically, exegetically, is that many times as Pentecostals, we continue to perceive and understand and interpret the third person, the Ruach of the Old Testament, in Old Testament terms as power, energy, influence, wind. In most cases, somewhat impersonal. But if anything marks the difference of the coming of the giving by the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, we find that he comes as person, not as a power, not as an energy, not as an influence, but as a person. And so as Jesus chose to locate himself as person amidst the existential struggle of men in finding its place of grace in Christ, now the Holy Spirit is sent, not as a power and an energy, but a person. And again, the Holy Spirit now becomes the agency, the person through which he makes possible 
giving the capacity, the gift, the power of expressing his presence in the glory of God in languages that they themselves, I understand, did not believe, or understand rather than believe, that made it possible to transcend the distances created by the differences of language and culture present within that diaspora. The Holy Spirit comes as person to the church and coming as person again, he like God in the beginning and like Christ in the incarnation comes not from a distance, but comes in full fellowship with us as his creation Though sinners, he comes to accompany us, to transform us, to find grace and forgiveness and peace. But to do so, he comes to identify and relate to our cultures, to our languages, to our diversity. The Holy Spirit makes himself present, respecting that difference. And so I see as I continue to think out loud, what does this mean for the mission of the church? And Kenner and Worthington very well, and I reappreciate it so much, how they re-emphasize the tongues, the gifts of, of tongues to the church. It's, it's, it's its mission for multicultural mission. It's foundational for the diversity of the church because we have been called to reach out to the whole world where there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, where there's no longer male nor female nor slave or Lord, but we have been made one, but that oneness is culturally and linguistically conditioned, contextualized, and diverse. In the midst of that diversity, the Holy Spirit equips us to recognize how both language is a gift of God and also can be a great instrument of division and separation and indifference. Today, today as Americans and as Christians first, and as Americans secondly, how do we respond to the foreigner among us who comes with a different language? That for some, the hearing of that language is an insult. And I ask that the reading of the text this morning be done first in Spanish. And I wanted you to close your eyes. And I wanted you to try to hear and understand what he said, what is he reading there? I don't understand. I wonder what the verse is. To have that experience of hearing the voice of the other. And we live at a time that is so difficult for the, for the church. And I think, and often I am embarrassed when the church does not live to its witness in the world to be a community of community a community of engagement, of welcoming. Recently, I was in a Salvation Army store. And as I'm looking through, I love to go through antique stores and stuff, and I'm in a Salvation Army, and I hear this, uh, this man insulting this woman. Really, in a loud voice, he's insulting her. And what he's saying to her is, why don't you get out of here? What are you doing here? Because he heard her speaking in Spanish to her child. We don't need you here. Why don't you go back to your country? Come over here to take advantage of us. 
And so I walked over to the gentleman and I said, excuse me, sir. He says, you know, uh, I would ask you to be a little more respectful towards this, this young woman and her child. That why you should address her in that way. Then he looks at me and look at me and he obviously said, ah, this is another Latino, another invader, another strange one. And he says, you too, what are you doing here? Get out of here. We don't need you in this country. And I said, well, have you considered? And one of the things he said, we don't need you. If you're going to be here, speak English. We speak English here. So you're going to be here, you have a responsibility to English. And I said to him, has it ever occurred to you that the first language spoken in the Americas besides the Native American languages was Spanish? That the first city founded here by the Spaniards was St. Augustine, Florida? And when Lewis and Carl got on the other side of the continent, they ran into Mexicans in Spanish, speaking in Spanish. You know, Los Angeles is not English, by the way. <laughs> San Antonio, it isn't either. And I says, hasn't it occurred to you that before English was spoken on this continent, Juan Ponce de Leon governed the Americas from Florida and from Puerto Rico? And so the newcomer here, culturally and linguistically, sir, is you. <laughs> because you see, her parents and grandparents and mine were here before yours. It seems to me that you're Irish. <laughs> he says, yes. So probably your great-grandparents came here because of the Irish famines. They came seeking shelter and food and a future because of the devastating poverty because of the potato famines. And others came fleeing. And so before you arrived, mine were already here. And so I would say to you, if the question is that the most recent arrival should be the first to leave, I think the one that needs to leave are you, sir, because my parents were here first, and we were speaking Spanish here before you were speaking English. But in our great Latino tradition, we say to you, mi casa es tu casa. <laughs> Don't leave, stay, welcome, welcome. As our great parents arrived as foreigners to this country, as yours did, we need one another to bless one another, to encourage and to receive one another in a spirit of hospitality. And one of the beautiful things in the Old Testament about the stranger, that he tells them, don't forget, you were a sojourner, a foreigner, an immigrant. Don't forget your own identity, your own journey of loneliness, of fear, of oppression. No, but use it as an expression of your welcoming, hospitality. So the law of Moses made provision for the reception of the foreigner to be taken care of and loved.
And so I think that as we think out loud about the testimony of Scripture in the time in which we live, what is our responsibility to our neighbor, that other that is called to be my brother? Because he and she are also created in the likeness and the image of God. And so how do we today pray? Oh, Holy Spirit, come once again upon us with discernment of being able to hear and love the diversity of expression of your creation, not only in the church, but in the world, outside of the life of the church, and see your desire to make your love and justice present for all of your creation because you love us all and to honor our cultures in our languages as gifts of God. I was often prohibited from speaking Spanish. And as a doctoral student, I approached the dean and I said, you know, I'm required five languages, modern. And so I'd like to take a Spanish language exam for one of my modern languages. And the dean says, no, 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 Sullivan, you can't take Spanish. First of all, there is no thing as a language exam, a doctoral level language exam in Spanish for theology. They just, you know, we don't do that. You see, but you have German, you have French, you got Hebrew, you got Greek, you got Latin, you got Aramaic, you go on, but not Spanish. No, 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 no. Spanish is not legitimate. This is what he told me, not legitimate. So you, and, and since you're Latino and you speak Spanish, you can't take a modern language exam in your own language, Spanish. And I said, oh, okay, so I want English as my modern language exam. <laughs> no, 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 you can't do that. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You can't have it both ways. Am I a Latino or am I an English-speaking American? And so I can't take both. Well, I had to fight with the faculty to have Spanish approved, especially when my specialization was liberation theology. When I'm studying with Gutierrez and Cohn and the Latin American thinkers, and I said, how is it that those stuttering bard have to learn French and have to take a German exam? And those, you know, till him they shall need French. But if you can read Latin American theology and not require Spanish, isn't that somewhat biased? Well, they changed the rules and they included Spanish. For those especially dealing with Latin American theology, they had to learn Spanish. And then in the library, another problem, I go and ask for these books of Latin American theologians, but I want them in Spanish, and they give them all to me in English. They said, I don't want them. I don't want to read it in English. I want to read it in the original language in which the authors express themselves, the same way you read Bart and others, okay? Well, we don't have any of those books in Spanish. I said, why? You're violating the policy, the academic policy of this library, the Great Union Library, where every book is to be first ordered in its original language. Why is it that none of the books written by Latino authors and Latina authors are not here in Spanish?
Well, I took it to the Library Policy Committee. They had to turn around and order those books in Spanish to be read in their original language. And so the challenge of facing our diversity of language and culture continues even among our beloved academic Christian seminars. It's not easy. Diversity and living in the community diversity is difficult and only possible through the graciousness of the Holy Spirit among us that makes possible the miracle of I loving you in spite of your difference, your culture, your lifestyles. It is only the grace of the Holy Spirit that makes us one in Christ and a witness to the world that needs to see in you and in me that welcoming grace of the Spirit that binds us together and doesn't ignore our culture, doesn't ignore my language or your language, no, but takes it seriously enough to receive it, to make space and respect for it, to learn from it as we learn from your cultural and language expressions. And that is a miracle. And only the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church, as he did on Pentecost, renew a Pentecost. For us to be the church of love, of welcoming, of caring, of listening to one another and honoring our difference. I do not ask you to be Latino or Latina. I do not ask you to learn Spanish. I do ask you to welcome me and help me find the riches and the beauty of your language and your culture as I seek with grace to invite you to learn, also be enriched by my culture, which is so diverse in the Latino community because we go from blonde, blue eye, white, to black and everything in between because color does not define the Latino community. More than any else is our language that we share in its diversity. And so this day, as I reflect, pensando en voz alta, thinking about out loud about the implication of the question, what does this mean? The other night I stayed up a good part of the night just fa you know, fascinated by its implication for ecclesiology, eschatology, Christology, theology. Whoa. And I said, wow, man, I'm having fun. I'm enjoying this. I never looked at this question this way. So I invite you to invite the Holy Spirit says, oh Lord, this day, help me to ask anew the question, what does it mean to me in my context, in my reality, the giving of the Holy Spirit in respect to the issues of culture and language? Oh, Holy Spirit, this morning we thank you for your presence among us. 
as we ref reflect and think out loud on these questions that often trouble us, at times confuse us. Father, we pray that our engagement with the other, with diversity, that we may be enriched, that we may be blessed, and that we may enrich one another in the midst of our diversity to build community, to know and discover our oneness in you. In Christ, Lord, our blessed hope, we give thanks. And we pray, O oh Lord, O oh come, Lord, your church awaits your return. <laughs>